Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. You can feel the passion, the emotion. And Dortmund against all the odds, our European champions. Welcome to Believe in Borussia, your Borussia Dortmund podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. Welcome to episode number five of this wonderful podcast that you can find anywhere on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, on Apple Podcasts. And if you're there, please let us know what you think or drop us a comment on Instagram, on Twitter. You can find us at Believe, B-L-E-A-V, in Borussia. And now on with the show. So we have a lot to talk about today because it was quite an eventful day today. We usually record on Sundays and apart from the big games that happened the past week, there was also a bombshell drop by European top clubs. And we also have the very first guest on this show. And we are very happy to have been able to sit down with Jordan Gardner, who is the co-owner and the CEO of Danish First Division team FC Helsingor and a minority owner of Swansea City and Dundalk FC. So he's just a guy to talk about things like 50 plus 1, financial fair play, the difference between soccer in the US and Europe and so on. But first things first. So let's start with the Champions League. Um, the gist, we are out. Uh, top 8 in Europe. We had a good start. We even went up 1-0 with a fantastic goal from Jude Bellingham, who pretty much provided an instant classic moment with an iconic uh, photo shot. And he has been terrific. We already talked about him last week a little bit. And Jude has been putting in the work. And, he's, and he, with only 17 years, is becoming a rock in this team. An absolute leader and fighter. And I love to see him going to work on the pitch. It's an absolute joy. Unfortunately, after that goal, we sort of forgot to do anything with the ball and just let City come, got pushed in way too deep. And it doesn't help then that we gave away a penalty relatively cheaply, um, even though you could probably make the argument that Chan played the ball first with his head. And the argument I'm trying to make is that per the rules, this is actually an exception. And I'm citing here the IFAB law 12,000 misconduct. Except for the above offenses, it is not an offense if the ball touches a player's arm or hand, and I quote, directly from the player's own head or body. It pretty much looks like Chan bends down, heads the ball first, and heads it straight onto his arm or a higher shoulder. But the ref called it an instant handball, and it stood. And to be fair, you're bringing this onto yourself a bit by not pressing back enough and inviting City to play in ball after ball. There were so many crosses and corners at that point. It was just a matter of time before something bad happened. And part of the truth is also that Chan, as much as I like him, gave away two goals over two games. Now knowing his passion and desire that he has for the game and what a competitor he is, he is probably the most upset about it. But the bottom line is you just can't make such cheap mistakes if you want to go top four in Europe. Luckily, we did better in the league and actually put together two wins. And after the very close affair against Stuttgart last weekend, we put out a very convincing, at least result against Bremen with a 4-1 victory. Now, I have to be honest here. I had a little trouble following the game amidst the shirt frenzy that Dortmund dropped on all of us. 
and thank you for that, Dortmund, for always scheduling this around the game. So it's virtually impossible to sort of like uh, focus on the play, at least for me. You have to know, for me as a child of the 90s, these neon yellow kids, that's what I knew. That was embossed on me. Dortmund is neon black and yellow. So I was just triggered. Like, I gotta be honest. Um, I, I didn't stand a chance. Normally, I'm not that type of like event guy, but I've been waiting on these shirts for 20 years and they, yeah, they got me. And they look freaking awesome, I think. But anyway, um, luckily, after falling behind again, we were at least able to make it a pretty clear affair even before halftime so the game itself didn't hit the highest stress levels and i have to say shout out to Gio Reyner the american dream for having one of his best games in the wild for Dortmund he scored a screamer from outside the box to calm down our nerves and uh, put us back on track and tie up the game and he was running the Bremen defense ragged all game Honestly, Dortmund could have easily put a couple of more goals behind Bremen if they would have focused a little more because Gio and, and even some of the others had Bremen at their mercy. Uh, I don't know what it is about Gio. He seems to have their number, but whatever he's doing, it's working. So keep it up. It was also nice to see Haaland score a brace again after a terrible stretch of him not scoring for a total of three games. Seriously, how ludicrous is it that you feel three games without scoring is already a veritable crisis for especially a young goal scorer like him? The icing on the cake of our W was that Frankfurt and Wolfsburg both lost this weekend as well. And we could close the gap on the Champions League ranks to four points versus Frankfurt and five points versus Wolfsburg respectively. And the best thing about it is we're facing Wolfsburg next weekend. So after we are visiting Union Berlin this Wednesday, which is obviously a must win for us to keep our Champions League aspirations alive, we have a chance to square over Wolfsburg directly and maybe close it down to two points. Or if they don't win during the week and we do, maybe even overtake them already. So as every weekend, I suppose hope springs eternal. And since we're talking about our youngsters every week, um, there was a very interesting study um, that I came across from the International Center of Sports Studies in, I think, in Geneva, somewhere in Switzerland. And they crowned Borussia Dortmund the best team for young talent in the world. Well, if you're a close follower of Borussia Dortmund, there's probably not a lot of surprises for you here. But overall, it's still very interesting. So what they did is they looked at all the under-21 players and calculated how much playing time they actually get at their clubs. So not just the average age when they start, but how much do they actually get to play in these teams. And out of the European top five, Borussia Dortmund is first. They are giving the most minutes to young players in Europe's top five leagues, and it's not even close. And if you consider then that in the top 10, eight teams are of the French league, and it's not PSG, with one lone EPL side joining the fray with Wolverhampton, it's even more telling because while those are top five league teams, they're not certainly top European sides with all due respect. So Dortmund can actually back up the claim of giving young talent a shot while others just buy young talent and then never play him or loan him out. We will only get you if you're really good and then we will gonna let you play. Also interesting when you look at the bottom, that last are teams like Inter, Lazio and Sevilla. And interestingly in Germany, uh, Leipzig, which is always lauded by pundits for player development and so on and so forth, they are 13th out of the 18 Bundesliga teams. 
13, not even top 10. But you know what? I'm sure I'll hear about those local lads and the great development next year again from all the pundits because why fact check if you can just drink the Kool-Aid? Um, everybody knows the classic cliches of German football. Bayern are ruthless, Leipzig develop talent and Dortmund just sells. We haven't sold a single top player since 2018 in Dembele. And despite everybody claiming otherwise, Dortmund did fend off all the Bellingham, Sancho and Haaland advances in the last year as well. But hey, some of these pundits, they can hardly keep up with one team, let alone different leagues. So I guess that's just to be expected. That's why you're here. That's why you listen to Believe in Borussia, because you get some insights and actual facts. Who knows how much longer we will actually have Champions League and top five leagues as we'll know them, because after the bombshell today with uh, 12 European clubs stating their intent to um, found their own Super League, which is basically a closed Champions League system where they play each other, but they don't have to qualify on sporting arguments. They basically just dish out the seed to themselves and then they just keep on playing each other and playing each other. And if you're really nice, that you might get an invitation as well, or if you bring a lot of fans or other financial value. Now let's see how this actually pans out because there's a good chance this might just be to pressure the UEFA and the Champions League reforms that they are about to introduce and mend it more in the favor of these clubs. But nevertheless, one of the problems is when things like this happens, you can never get the genie really back into the bottle. And it is an absolute attack on many things that I cherish about soccer and the foundation really that also teams like Borussia Dortmund are built on. It's not a surprise that first and foremost, there are the big Premier League teams that have already achieved to alienate most of their long-standing fans and mute their stadia in return for fat TV deals around the world. But at the same time, so far no one has challenged the promotion relegation, which is a core principle of European soccer and really world soccer. Yes, you got state funds already and you have imbalances, but at least it's still possible right now to compete with varying business models. This would basically kill it. Last week, we played against City. They outspend us by a billion dollars and we came within the halftime of kicking them out of the competition. All that money wouldn't have had mattered. And while it becomes harder and harder, it's, it's at least still possible. What these teams are looking to do is, is to kill that possibility so they can be certain that they always will play each other, that they monopolize the Fed TV money and the best deals and that it's up to them and to their inkling and to their business interests who plays in the top competition and not about what's actually happening on the pitch. And let's be super clear here. To me, it's not about the idea of a Super League per se. Look, soccer has always been in flux. It's an evolution. Domestic leagues have changed uh, from Division to Premier League, from Oberliga setup to Bundesliga. The Champions League itself has evolved. But the difference is the participants were always based on sporting merits in a sense. And it was in a sense inclusive. When they started the European Cup, they actually went around and asked every FA to participate. Now, the English didn't want to participate because they thought they were better than the rest, which they weren't. But they thought that at the time, which was also one of the reasons why they actually thought of this competition to enable clubs to measure up against each other. But at the same time, people reached out to each other and they wanted to come to a conclusion together and found something together. Now this 
in that way, the fact that you are breaking away from the majority of clubs to jump at a chance to secure possible extra funds by cutting the others out, the others that have helped you build your current privileged position, you know, in the league, in the Champions League, playing against you, bringing their fans, bringing their history, making it valuable, making it competitive, that is just so selfish and short-sighted and sad. You want to create another superseding body? Well, then do it. Do it with the other clubs and associations. If your ideas are that brilliant, if you make so much money and you make it so much better for everybody else, propose it, convince them, and find a majority. Don't cut the line because you're annoyed by your current failures or your financial overexposure or you're just impatient because despite you already having tilted the game in your favor, you're still falling short of winning that ultimate, whatever that trophy is for your club. That's just against the integrity of the idea of sport itself. And I'm absolutely gobsmacked by the level of, I don't know if it's ignorance or naivety or, or just really being unaware of like the core principles of what makes soccer popular in Europe and thus by extension in the world because that model is the most watched and most enjoyed sporting competition in the world, bar none. And lastly, I don't think comparisons with the US compute here. Because it's a completely different base, a completely different set. Pro sports in America have historically been always about entertainment and making money. Soccer, on the other hand, has been founding on sported competition, on amateurism. And this has been upheld for a long time. In Germany, for example, basically until the Bundesliga in 1963. Baseball, on the other side, already organized paid games in this sort of franchise system in the 1870s, 1880s. So 80 years before, and baseball as the original US sport and pastime is also the blueprint for every other professional sport. This franchise system was set up from the get-go here. The roles are, are completely different. As a spectator, you paid because you wanted to see the best in the sport. And when it sucked, you stayed away. And then the team folded or it moved. And everybody knew that. No one expected otherwise. No one wanted to have a bad team to stick around because... The relationship and the commitment were completely different. No one was necessarily invested in these guys. But a soccer club like Dortmund, it was born out of personal passion and commitment by young working class men against the powers that be, literally, or that were in that case. They founded a club in rebellion against the church and the club was nurtured by the community for over 40 years until slowly this passion started to pay dividends and turned into sporting success. For example, the first stadium was built out of pocket by members. They put in their labor, they went around the neighborhood, they asked people to contribute, either by donating money or selling shares or just through, through barter trading and goods. And through that, by caring more than others, by supporting your club more than others supported their club, this club, Borussia Dortmund, not only survived, but it strived. And this notion carried over generation to generation and it raised Borussia Dortmund from the bottom of a local league in West Germany to the top of world soccer. And every club, every community that has paid their dues deserves this opportunity. Every fan base that is going to pay that forward deserves this in their possible future. If you pool the money and then close off the competition, this bond is broken. Yes, the system already has flaws, but it is still an open competition. 
Now we'll have to see what happens and I hope personally that this won't stand and I also hope that there will be consequences and there will be more severe consequences than for example when going against financial fair play. But we'll have to see how this all pans out and at the end of the day the Pandora's box has been opened and this will have an impact going forward one way or another. Well luckily we have just a guest to discuss some of these things at least um, with some expert insight in Jordan Gardner and after he tells us a little bit what he does and why he's actually an expert on that field, um, we'll talk a bit about financial fair play 50 plus 1 and things of that nature. Hi, Jordan. Thank you for coming on on this podcast. Um, you know, I'm really excited to have you on. Um, you're our first guest, so... So I'm very happy to um, be able to talk soccer and investment, so to speak, um, with somebody that probably knows it like few others do in the States. So um, why don't you introduce yourself real quick and uh, what you currently do? Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm an American. Uh, I have a background in uh, sports and technology. Um, more recently, I've invested in a couple of European football clubs. I'm a very small shareholder in Swansea City in the UK. I'm a small shareholder in Dundalk Football Club in the Republic of Ireland. And the club that I spend all my time on, uh, I'm the chairman and owner of FC Helsinger in the Danish First Division. So we've, we've owned Helsinger for about two seasons now. We got the club promoted this last summer. We're having a really good season. Um, and yeah, I'm kind of, my job now you could say is, um, you know, an executive and running the, and managing uh, European football clubs. So yes, very unique space for an American to be in. As an uh, avid soccer fan, since I was wee high, um, that sounds like a dream come true, managing your own soccer club. Um, what, what got you into investing into soccer clubs? Um, is it just a love for the sport or is, is it an investment background maybe? I think it's a little bit of everything. I mean, I definitely, you have to be passionate about the sport to do what I'm doing. Um, I do have, I have a really entrepreneurial background. I think that's where um, running football clubs is really interesting, especially in Europe, right? You know, you can come in, you can buy a club that's maybe struggling and get it promoted. You can navigate the player transfer market. You can do some really interesting things from a business perspective. Of course, there are challenges and I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that later in the podcast. But for me, um, it checks a lot of boxes and it, you know, it's challenging geographically. I am based in the United States and I do kind of try to split my time. Um, so that's kind of the biggest challenge I have, but um, it's something that's really exciting. And for someone who's passionate about the sport, being able to spend a lot of time in and around European football is exciting because, you know, soccer is growing here in the United States, but still is the fourth or fifth or sixth most popular sport, but you go to Europe and it's just so culturally immersive and that's exciting to be a part of something like that. And have you played soccer in your youth or um, what is your attachment to the sport? Yeah. So I played uh, here in the States, uh, not quite at a professional level, but pretty close, probably to a semi-professional level. I still play here and there uh, when I have time. But, um, you know, I, I think I played up to a level where I have a pretty good, solid understanding of the game. Again, not at a professional level, but um, I, uh, I still play as much as I can. I don't think that's a KO criteria. I don't yeah. think um, if you look at somebody like Jurgen Klopp, who barely held on to the second division in Germany. I don't think anybody in the world would, you know, doubt his uh, football know-how. Um, being a good player doesn't mean, you know, you're going to be a good executive or manager. And the other way around, you know, holds true too. I was just interesting in sort of like uh, the roots. And you're based on the West Coast, right? 
Yes, I'm based in San Francisco. So those extra three hours, I'm sure they add up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the travel uh, back and forth isn't too bad. I mean, it's obviously a long flight, but it's the time difference that's tough. It's a nine-hour time difference to Central Europe. So uh, up up early watching games and watching tape early, but that's just, that's the way it is. Yeah, yeah. I I used to live on the West Coast for a time, and um, it's it's a lot different having a get up for a game at 6.30 versus 9.30. It's... <laughs> yes. I tell people what's difficult for us is um, you know, most of our games aren't at a bad time in Denmark, but some of the preseason games when we're playing in preseason, we'll have a game that's a kickoff at a one o'clock in Denmark at noon. I mean, that's like three o'clock in the morning for me. So that's, that's a little bit rough, but again, that's how it is. Yeah. I, honestly, I, I personally relate to that um, from a basketball point of view, because when I was still living in, in Europe, that was just sort of like during the playoffs, it was like you either stayed up until like one, two, three or whatever, because yep. you wanted to catch the game or no, actually, usually we just stayed up. Didn't even matter if it was like six or seven in the morning. No, I get that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you, you kind of touched upon like, I, I'd be really curious, like, how does a day to day look for you? And maybe also pre COVID, because I, I assume traveling and everything has been drastically reduced right now because of the pandemic. Yeah, no, I've been really fortunate that I was able to bring over an American CEO that runs the day to day kind of on the ground business for us in Denmark. So I, you know, I'm on conference calls with him all day, every day. Um, it depends certainly on the day of the week, what we're doing, you know, right now, for instance, to give you guys an example is we're going through the licensing process to make sure we have a license to to play next year, which I think a lot of people think is a formality, but it's a really difficult process that most clubs go through. I just saw a handful of clubs in Belgium didn't get licensed to play next year. Um, so a lot of that goes through the financial piece, your operations, making sure that you're a solid business. Um, you know, obviously I'm dealing a lot with our sporting side, you know, we're already preparing for the, uh, the summer transfer window. So looking at what the roster is going to look like going into next season. Um, we're at a really interesting place as a club right now where we're in the promotion group in the Danish first division. So we physically, we can't get relegated. It's not possible. Uh, but it looks unlikely we're going to get promoted. So we're kind of strategizing how can we use the next eight games to plan for next season, you know, certainly focusing on some of our young players, figuring out what our strategy is into next year. We, we kind of, it kind of gives us some freedom to um to not necessarily of course we want to win every game but we can test some things out so working with our coach on that um but yeah it definitely kind of just depends i'm probably hopefully going to be in denmark next month so it'll be a lot of um preparing mostly for the transfer window and looking towards next season so what would be your overall goal like when you've made this investment and you know takes took such a um, majority claim into the club is it is it winning some silverware eventually or maybe i don't know getting the club into the Champions League or, or at least the Super League for now, or is it building a strong academy and, you know, producing, being sort of like a hub for uh, up and coming products. I know that I think I, originally the idea was also to, to use it as a platform for American prospects. So yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I mean, of course we're realistic. There's limitations for a medium sized club in Scandinavia. Um, I think for us, the first goal was to stabilize the club, which we've done. Um, the second goal really is to get the club back to the Danish Superliga, the best league in Scandinavia. And that's a spot where we can really focus in on developing and selling players, which I think obviously every club needs to have uh, as a piece of their business. Um, you know, we've always talked about developing and bringing over American players. That's been difficult with COVID. I mean, I think that's something hopefully in the next 12 months we can start to refocus on a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think it's a little bit of a mix, certainly get to the Superliga, start to really sell some of our young players, stabilize as a club. And so I think we're well on our way to, to accomplishing most of those goals. And for you personally, is it something, you know, that's very long-term or, um, I don't know, is it something that you chose to sort of like prepare yourself maybe for a bigger role? Is it something you'd be interested in and sort of like developing 
yourself and the club and then maybe potentially stepping it up in terms of the you know size of the club? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the reasons I picked a club of the size of Helsinger was to really learn on the ground and make mistakes and understand how to run these clubs well and efficiently because you know, a lot of what we go through in Denmark is not different than what Borussia Dortmund is going through on a day-to-day basis. Of course, the numbers are different um, on a PL statement, but, you know, the way, you know, you have to run a European football club well and efficiently, it, it, it translates across the board. So, you know, I think Helsinger is a really interesting club and something I'll always be a part of, but I'm an ambitious guy. And I think, you know, at some point, probably in the near future, I'll be working on a project, whether that's replicating what we've we've done in Denmark at a bigger club across Europe, whether that's one of the potential multi-club portfolio models that are out there. There's a lot of different angles that can go, but certainly replicating the success we have at scale is definitely something I personally am interested in. And it makes total sense. I mean, it's the name of the game in soccer all over. You know, um, you perform well at a smaller club as a young guy, chances are you're going to get picked up. Are you a coach that, you know, can lift a team that has a smaller budget, but can compete or even outperform other teams, you're going to get picked up by bigger clubs. I mean, if you can show that you, you know, use your resources wisely over a certain amount of time, um, people will be interested to get that. I mean, for us, our thought process is, look, I think a lot of American groups in particular, they come in and their first entry into European football is buying a big club. And that can be really difficult, especially if you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) These American groups are pretty arrogant and they think the way that they do things in North America can really easily translate. So for us, we said, look, if I can set the infrastructure in place to identify a player, let's say on a free transfer in Denmark and sell him for half a million euros, which in the scheme of global football is not a whole lot of money. There's no reason you can't do that at a Bundesliga club and buy the player for 5 million and sell him for 25, right? Like it gives you proof of concept. and We feel pretty good that that's the model we can replicate. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the irony of it is, you know, it goes both ways. Um, I see, you know, European clubs coming to America, you know, thinking like we're a global brand. We're seen all over the world from Indonesia to Brazil. And then they're a little surprised that, you know, people, especially in a town like New York, aren't necessarily all rolling out the red carpets because it's a competitive entertainment and sports market. And yeah, you really have to adapt and it goes both ways. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Speaking about American investors, um, I know there's a few others, I think, also in Denmark. Uh, uh, Koga comes to mind for me, uh, George Altiers with Capelli. Um, what's the perception of, uh, of foreign investment into clubs? Like in the public, is that a topic and among the fans? It has been talked about a good amount in Denmark because you do have so many foreign ownership groups. I think it depends on the group. You've had a, a lot of groups come in and really struggle. There was a German group that came in last year that, that left. Um, some of the foreign groups have really struggled. I think some of the groups that have focused on, hey, we're going to come in and we're going to bring in players from Africa, like there's really challenging ways to replicate those models. I mean, outside of FC Norseland, there's really no club in, in Scandinavia that I've seen that's done that particularly well. So it's mixed. I think American groups in particular generally are thought of pretty positively, um, but it just depends on the individual group and what their business model is. You know, American groups just came and bought Esbjerg, which is a team that's just right near us on the table. Um, Sandra Yuska and the Super League is bought by an American group. So there's a lot of new groups coming in. I think it's probably a little too early to tell um, how they've done. And if they win games and do well, people will like them. And if they don't win games and they struggle, people will not like them. That's just how this business goes. I mean, that's true for pretty much anyone when it comes to performing in, in, in the soccer club. But uh, would you say there is generally um, a more openness towards it, a more liberal approach? Or is it maybe down to because it's easier to be like, let's try it out if you don't have that much to lose. I feel like part of the pushback in Germany is because they feel like they're not on top with the Premier League in terms of like spending power. But they're still ahead of, you know, most of the other clubs 
in, in world football and with the model. So I don't know. I, I feel like there's a there's a less sort of like a mix of a cultural, but but also a status mix up where you're like, oh my god, this could go really well, but it could also go really yeah. bad. I think it's a little bit different in a country like Denmark, where it's it's a relatively small country and there's only so many people willing to invest in the sport that I think people understand that you need foreign investment to elevate these clubs so that Danish football can grow. I mean, I don't know how many billionaires there are in Denmark, but there aren't that many, certainly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Germany, I, I can understand in Germany why there's more hesitancy on foreign investment. Um, because you're right. I mean, there are plenty of horror stories. If I was a supporter of a club being bought by an American group, I would be very skeptical. Um, but at the same time, I do think some of these supporters don't understand that there's plenty of domestic owners who run these clubs just as poorly as well. So uh, to me, it's much less about who the owner is and where they come from, more about what their business plan is, what their background is. Do they have an understanding of the sport? Are they, are they going to bring in good people, like how that looks versus where the investor necessarily comes from? Yeah, that makes sense. And um, how, how does it tie all in with, with Swansea and Dundalk? I mean, your day-to-day is obviously um, in Denmark. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just a small minority shareholder in those two clubs. I don't have any involvement in the day-to-day operations of those clubs. Um, you know, I can go to the games, I can pick up the phone and see what's going on at those clubs. But those were the first two investments I made in European football. And they were really interesting to spend time on the ground and learn from those experiences before we went into Denmark. Um, it's fun being a part of the club. Hopefully Swansea will probably be in the playoff this year. So hopefully the club can get back to the Premier League. But um, with those investments, there's, there's no tie-ins with the others. Well, that's still a pretty good tie-in for me. Like as a as yeah. a fan, I, I shoot. I mean, I got some shares from Borussia Dortmund, and not you know as a business investment or anything. It's just because well, I'm already a member, so that little stake in it, which is a lot, a lot smaller than yours, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I'm saying I, I get it, and I think that's already pretty cool. I wonder how how do you get it all done then? I mean, you're on a nine hour time difference, which means you basically probably never really sleep properly, um, at least around game days. Um, I'm sure you probably do a bunch of other things too, or maybe you don't, I don't know, but, but yeah, like, how do you, what's your day? Like you like sleep four hours. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most of my day is it's over by you know noon or one o'clock. So it frees up in the late afternoons and you're right. My sleep patterns do kind of go all over the place, but yeah, I mean, it, it's helpful to, again, like I said, I have really good people, uh, both on the ground in Denmark and people that work for me that can help smooth the transition. And cause it can be very difficult. I mean, of course, we're not Manchester United. We're not a huge organization, a huge club, especially during COVID when there's no fans. We still can't have fans in Denmark. So there's not that much necessarily to do uh, right here and right now on a day-to-day basis. But um, you know, I do spend a lot of time looking at other potential projects. We're looking at something on Australia. Um, so it's a little bit it's a little bit of everything, but I, I would say it comes down to just having good people that can help execute what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. So with you and, and I guess, you know, you, the group of financiers uh, you work with, uh, are you looking to build something like of a portfolio similar to like the city football group in a sort? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, I have a lot of different people that are involved in the different clubs I'm in. We have our group in Helsinger and, you know, some people are interested in bigger investments. Some people are not interested in bigger investments. No, I, I personally think, I don't know if replicating the city football group model directly is the best way to go because they have their own geopolitical interests and they spend money like it's candy, right? But I do think the groups that are out there finding ways to uh, invest in smaller markets, whether it's Belgium, Denmark, Netherlands, Portugal, to really focus on developing players are doing some smart things. And I think at some point in the future, that's something in some form we'll look at. Okay. Uh, so you're basically thinking, saying there's like synergies among these clubs because they, they face the similar pressures. So you basically, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you guys a good example. Like we, we have a player right now in Helsinger in Denmark, who's out of contract in the summer, very good young player, 22 years old, who wants to play for a bigger club. 
and he's going to be a free agent. And because we're not necessarily part of a global network of clubs, it's kind of going to be difficult for us to keep him right now. If we had a bigger club in our portfolio, maybe we, we could have that player sign at the bigger club, loan him back to us for a year. He can be within our network of clubs and we can you know maintain his potential future value as a standalone club being a medium sized club that can be difficult. So that's where you can see the potential synergies between multiple clubs. All right. I mean, that makes sense. in in a way, I mean, you can, you can, I guess, push it as far as, as Red Bull does. Yeah. Just, just basically just that park yeah. players at different levels and then yeah. also meddle a little bit with the numbers, but okay, that's a different topic. <laughs> um, what's been the best thing so far about this experience for you and what's the worst? Uh, I mean, the best was when we got promoted to the Danish first division. I mean, it was, uh, I, I don't, I don't care what division it is and what level and what country, like it is so incredibly difficult to get promoted and that sense of satisfaction that all the work you put in over the period of a year is rewarded. Um, so that, that's something that I, for me is always going to be something that will be with me in terms of satisfaction. Um, you know, the, for, from a negative side, the first six months, I would say at the club was really difficult. It was really challenging to come in. The club was not in a good place. There was definitely a hesitancy and resistancy to change in the organization and around the club. And that was difficult, certainly for me coming in as this is the first club that I'm the majority owner in, um, understanding how to navigate that and make good decisions. And um, that was certainly not a fun time to be involved in a club. But I mean, most clubs that are for sale, there's something wrong with them. There's something that needs to be fixed. And once you can kind of get over that hump, you feel that things become much easier. You know, there's a lot of ownership groups that can't get over that. That, that first six to 12 months just destroys yeah. them. Um, but certainly the cultural differences between the U.S. and Denmark were challenging at first. Understanding, you know, it's a socialist country. They look at the world in a different way than we do. Um, so that those were def definitely some challenges that were not super fun at the time, but we're in a much better place now. If you had any word of advice to pass to you two years ago, what would it be? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I think my advice to myself probably would have been, look, you know, when we got into Denmark, we thought the club on the outside looked like it was pretty good and well run and things were good. And ultimately, when we dug into it and actually bought the club, that turned out not to be the case. So I think giving myself some data points, understanding like, look, you need to be a little bit more aggressive in terms of understanding what this organization is and what you need to change and how you need to do it decisively. Maybe it took me six months to make, come to that realization. I think if I had done that from scratch, I probably could have saved myself some time and headaches. But honestly, like, I don't know how much of this I could have told myself differently. You just have to go through the experience to understand what this is like and come out the other side before you can actually have a good understanding of it again, which is why I think it's so difficult to be in this ownership executive space in European football without having the commiserate experience. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. And who knows, you might've, done certain things different if you had seen it you know I, 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 I think at sometimes you just need to take the plunge so yeah kudos for doing that um we already touched touch up on it a little bit but you just talked about the cultural differences so i'm also very curious about that i find it very interesting that you said that denmark is a is a socialist country um which i guess in a sense is true like the central european countries have a different sense of uh, community within the society like just a different concept of you know who takes care of whom and how you know the individual role in society so to speak which is yeah. also interesting because i feel like when it comes to football or, or professional sports is the extreme opposite i feel like yeah. the american model is socialist with wage gaps and you know like um, protecting everybody and helping the weak while um soccer is full-fledged 
turbo market capitalism. And so, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think when, when I say that the cultural differences from a socialist perspective, it's more about running a business than anything, whether it's labor laws, whether it's staffing your employees. Um, you're right. You're hundred percent right from a, I, I get asked all the time, like, do you guys work together with the other clubs? Do you get support from the Federation in Denmark? And I'm like, no, no, no. Everyone's on their own. Everyone's trying to do the same thing. Everyone, no one wants to get relegated. Right. Um, but yeah, I think our challenges were more just, you know, employees showing up at 10 a.m. and leaving at two o'clock and different different things that we're just weren't used to and the you know, the work ethic. And again, they're not bad or good. They're just different. And it took us some time to kind of adjust and understand how things work over there and how we can fit in what we want to do. And I think I think some groups look at it differently where they say, okay, we'll just, we'll leave everything in place in terms of, let's say you buy a club in Denmark, we'll leave the operations and the, the way it's run in place and we'll just let them do their thing. And I don't think that's the right way to do it either, right? Of course, we're trying to run an efficient business and Generally, most clubs I've seen in a place like Denmark, they're not operated to run efficiently. They're not designed to try to make money at some point, for the most part, from what I've seen. On the other hand, you'll have groups that'll come in and say, I'm going to get rid of everyone. I'm going to bring a whole bunch of foreigners in to run this club. I think that's also not the right approach, right? You bring in a whole bunch of foreigners who don't understand the culture, you're going to have a lot of challenges there. So I think for us, it was about kind of finding that balance, right? We brought in an American CEO, but we kept most of our Danish staff in place. And so that's able to kind of make sure we can run the club in a way that we feel makes sense from an American perspective, but also maintaining that, you know, you know, expertise from a local perspective. That's really important. What would you say is the biggest difference for you uh, in the game of soccer in terms of like perception and, 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 and value um, between the U S and Europe? Obviously it's not as big a sport as NFL, but can you speak a little on that? Yeah, I mean, the biggest difference, obviously, is just the way the sport is structurally set up, you know, with promotion relegation, with the player transfer market, like, all, I mean, you have that in the US, but it's not as robust. I think, to answer your question, I think the sport is just so culturally immersive in Europe in a way that it isn't in North America. Um, you know, whether you're a, a young kid who is in our academy, who's going to a training session before school, then going to school, then going to a training session after school, then having a soccer ball at his foot in the evening when he's doing his homework, right? That kind of stuff that I've seen in Europe doesn't exist in North America. Maybe it will someday. Um, but I think it's difficult for the growth of the sport to parallel Europe in North America when it's just not immersive in a way that it is in Europe. But I would argue, like, for example, what you're describing right now, I know there's like in basketball, that's kind of like the same thing, you know, like you, I don't know, you have PE, then you have your P athletics, then you have your practice after school. Like if you're a high school kid, for example, and you go home and you play with your boys and you pop on the TV and watch an NBA game. Um, but at the same time, I still wouldn't say uh, the NBA or basketball is at the level that soccer is in Europe. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you have what you just described does absolutely exist. You just don't have that for the sport of soccer. And I mean, in Europe, again, I, I just have, a oh, limited, no, absolutely. I just have a limited window into what I've seen in Denmark. You know, I, I do see people interested in other sports, but not, not in a way that the gap between in my, again, just from what I see, the gap between soccer and other sports in Europe is just massive. The gap between other, you know, in other sports in North America, there's lots of kids playing lots of sports being culturally immersive, but like soccer seems to be towards the bottom of that list. You're right. Basketball's like that. Baseball's like that. And it's growing and more kids are playing the game in, in North America, but it's just the way I see it is there's more kids playing recreationally. There's more kids playing in a casual way. Kids are still transitioning to other sports in North America at 12, 13, 14, where in Europe it's soccer hundred percent all the way from nine to 18 in my sense. But again, that's just what I see from that, from my perspective. Would you say, soccer is even more present 
in the day-to-day there than, than the big sports here? Or is it about the same? You're talking in Europe? Yeah. Um, it's probably the same, but in, in the US it's fractured because you have multiple major sports, right? That's the difference, right? You could go out to a field right now here in North America and see kids playing basketball. You could see kids playing baseball, some playing soccer, some playing American football, right? Like it's just, it's, it's fractured because there's so many popular sports in Europe, in my mind, like in Denmark, right? It's soccer, it's ice hockey a little bit, it's handball a little bit, but like it's soccer. That's basically it. I mean, I've seen a couple of basketball courts in Denmark, like a handful in the entire country. Like, so. Okay. Do do you, do you actually like that sort of monoculture? Do you think that's, um, I don't know, does it, do something for you on the business side or on the personal side? I mean, I think it definitely makes a difference when it comes to the developing players and the growth of the sport. I think it, it is a big, in my mind, contributor to the, to why Europe has a culture of developing players and, and having such a high level in football. I mean, it obviously it comes down to coaching and infrastructure and that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, is it good for the kids that they're just playing one sport and focused on one sport their whole childhood? I mean, th- that could be argued one way or the other. I do think, it's probably not a bad thing that kids are trying different things and trying different sports. But um, from a, I'm in football, I'm trying to, I have an academy and I'm trying to develop the next young kid to come through Helsinger. Of course, it's good that they're focusing only on one sport. All right. Um, moving on maybe to um, the last two points. And I want to look into Germany, mm-hmm. um, obviously where Dortmund plays and the very particular 50 plus one model. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Yeah, how do you feel about it? I mean, obviously, a lot of people forget you can still be an investor in any club in Germany. You just can't be a majority shareholder, aside the exceptions that exist. So, but yeah, maybe speak about it. Uh, what do you think about it in general, and maybe also about the exceptions that have been made? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think it's an interesting rule. I understand why it's in place. Um, it's like we talked about earlier. I think the idea is to avoid kind of some of the pitfalls that you know big foreign investment has made in to European soccer. Uh, you're right. There's ways around it, and I think more groups are starting to look at coming in and saying, "Hey, can we buy 49.9% and figure out a management agreement so we have most control of this club?" Um, there's talk about the rule going away, and I'm not a subscriber to that way of thinking. I think the rule will always be there in some form. I think German football is so unique in that sense. Um, but to, to say, is the rule good or is it bad? I don't know that necessarily. Again, it comes down to some, you know, if the right ownership group came into Germany as a majority shareholder, it was a foreign group. I think that I would support that. If it's the wrong group, I wouldn't support that, right? So I think it creates a barrier to entry, which some people would probably say is good. I mean, most groups say, hey, we just can't invest in Germany because we can't have majority control of a club. I mean, I think what most people kind of forget, as much as I actually do really like German football as a potential investment, I think mo- a lot of clubs are well run. There's plenty of clubs that are run horribly in Germany. I mean, Kaiserslautern's way down there. Like, I mean, Hamburg has been run horribly all these years. So there's plenty of local German ownership groups that are running these teams in the toilet, just like every other country. So um, I do think the way that some of the clubs are run has attracted foreign investment. And I think we'll continue to see that, whether that's in the framework of 50 plus one or not, I don't know. In terms of the exceptions to the rule, I mean, those are grandfathered in over many years. I mean, it seems kind of unreasonable that some clubs have an exception while others don't but again that's the way things have been done there would you agree and i kind of made that point in that same article the bloomberg article um about the investment strategy that you know opening it up to investment usually the the proponents of this and and you know deleting the rule the 50 plus one rule are saying hey we need that to create parity 
I would argue it might actually create more disparity because I think as an investor, you're more interested in, you know, the best value and the best value are usually the best run clubs. Of course, there's these clubs, maybe that they're somewhat dysfunctional, but have a big substance and you go in there and turn it around. But at the end of the day, when I look at sponsorships, the big brands, they go to the big clubs because at the end of the day, mid and long term, they will get probably the best return on their investment. Uh, would you say as an investor that's similar or would you always look for the most dysfunctional club and then help them lift them up? It depends on the investment group and what their investment model is. Of course, every group wants to find the biggest club with the best fan base. And you know, when you see Sunderland right going down two levels or you, you say, oh, wow, like that. I mean, I don't know what Kaiserslautern's attendance is right now, but like they're in the third and fourth tier and that's a huge club, right? So then you're like saying, okay, yeah, that club's a disaster right now, but it has a huge built-in value proposition with the fan base and the infrastructure in the city, right? So for me, in generally, I don't think most clubs are well run, even if you dug into the financials in most clubs. So for me, it's more about finding a club where you can come in and add value and find kind of an, a distressed, undervalued club. I realize all the other investors have different ways of looking at things. Some some investors are like, hey, I want to go into Inter Milan because it's in the Champions League and it's it's reasonably run well and we're going to pay a premium for that. I'm not, I don't subscribe to that. Um, but I think it just depends on the way of thinking from that particular investment group. So would you think it creates more parity, more disparity, or would it run in the same as it is now? I think it probably balances each other out. I mean, ideally, if if better, more well-run groups come in and buy the poorly run clubs, you're going to have more parity in terms of presumably most of the clubs will be well-run. I mean, that doesn't happen, obviously, but um, I think it just depends. All right. I personally also think one important factor is that, you know, this 50 plus month model uh, ensures or sort of like manifest the membership culture, which directly translates or relates to the to the fan culture in Germany, which is a big selling point of the league and each individual club. And that's something I personally feel uh, gets overlooked a lot in these discussions as well. Because if you ever look at a Bundesliga deck or any individual club deck, like you just, you just brought it up with Kaiserslautern, it's usually, oh, look at their fans, look at the yellow wall, look at 80,000, 60,000, 70,000 every weekend, you know. Um, so... I I, th I think there's a tie-in there that, that that people tend to overlook a little bit. I think foreign investors uh, generally have a very little understanding of the fan culture in Germany. They just assume that these big clubs have big fans and you're going to come in as a foreign owner and do whatever you want to do and they're going to support the club. And I don't think they understand how different German footballing culture is and how uh, the kind of, I mean, again, you would know better than I would about this, but from my perspective, the kind of anti-commercialization of the sport it, it is for some people is. And I think it's a really delicate balance for people to come into Germany and make sure you can appreciate the way supporters look at the sport there with obviously the whole reason you're there, which is to try to run these clubs better and make money. I think that's a really difficult balance. And it might be more difficult in Germany than anywhere else in Europe. No, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, I, I think people would probably underestimate how, how vocal, um, how opinionated these fans are. I mean, these fans, you know, they are passionate. They, they, they bring a certain atmosphere and commitment to the club, maybe in terms of like the organizational level and just the, the, the total numbers is pretty rare when you, when you look around soccer or even sports in the world. But yeah, but in return, they, they want to say and they want to, you know, uh, be heard and they want to be have an impact and that doesn't even always align with you know the the, the current uh, folks and I, I don't say it's always reasonable but yeah you have to definitely reckon with it i mean uh, was it the fan protests over the games being on tv on monday nights right yeah. and you're like from my perspective like what, what are you talking about of course who cares right like 
I mean, we're a club. We need to have the games on. We need to satisfy the television networks, but the fans look at that very differently. Yeah, or if you look at the the Qatar uh, criticism, you know, with Bayern, you know, um, yeah. Here it's like, wow, we, we're signing this player and we're paying him so much, or we get this big new deal. Now we're like we're four billion, and and there, within certain, you know, there's obviously quite a diversity in the fan groups, but like especially in the ultra movements and people that are, um, you know, swimming in those streams. Um, yeah, there's definitely a very um, active pushback to, towards all these things. Well, maybe as the last topic, uh, financial fair play. You know, there's been discussions of uh, completely. Um, you know, abolishing it. I think there's a, there's a good purpose behind it. The idea itself to balance it out a little bit makes sense. And it works, as you can see in the States, even though obviously the pro promotion relegation is, is something that you don't have here in the pro leagues. And even sort of like within the fringes, it's it's better to have a little bit of a limitation than, than have it all free-flowing. At the same time, it's not super effective and it's also not very transparent and it, it is kind of questionable. I would argue it's not effective at all. I think the bigger clubs find ways around it. They're, to me, I think it's important, especially from coming from an American perspective, to have some sort of wage constraints in place to try to keep your costs reasonably down. I mean, I think the closest thing that a league does that I think is reasonably okay is La Liga. They have some, quote, salary cap constraints in terms of how much you can spend based on your revenue. I think financial, financial fair play is a farce that is just needs to get a not abolish, but they need to wipe it out and start from scratch and find something that makes more sense. Uh, do I think that's going to happen? Probably not. Um, but What I do think you, it, yeah, go ahead. Do you, do you think it can happen? Because, you know, it's one thing to sort of like limit the spending and, and the investment opportunities. If you can be assured that you're part of the league next year, like you are in the NFL or NBA, do you think it's possible to, to have put these sort of like limitations on there when, yeah, people are trying to outperform each other? Yeah, I mean, I don't know from a EU legal perspective what's legal and what's not. I mean, there's conversations about that. Um, I mean, I don't think, I mean, if you look at like the La Liga quote salary cap, I don't think it's unreasonable. You're still, I mean, clubs are still able to spend huge percentages of their revenue on player wages. So it's not look something. Look at Barcelona. Yeah, it's not constraining clubs from becoming relegated or anything like that. It's trying to like at least a little bit make sure they're spending within their means. And I think that's what most clubs should be doing. I don't have the answer. I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I just know the current system isn't working. Um, and you just, you, I mean, I was just looking today, Reading, right? I mean, they're not in the Champions League, but they're in the championship. You know, they're spending 215% of their revenue on player wages. Like, how does that work with financial fair play? Like, that team's just losing 50, 100 million pounds in the championship. Like, that's crazy. Like, they're going to go out of business pretty soon if they continue doing that. So I just don't know how there isn't some form of oversight on that sense. But, you know, that's just what I think. Yeah, yeah, like like I said, I don't think it's very effective. Um, and it seems the only thing that actually gets punished, it's not the infringement themselves per the rules. It's just not if you're not playing along, you know, sort of like with UEFA. Like they find you, City for not uh, taking part in their sort of like soft slap on the hand, not necessarily for what they actually did on the financial end. Um, so. Yeah. Very yep. questionable. Anyway, um, we've come to the end. I thank you so much for uh, taking time. It was super interesting um, to hear about somebody at the forefront, basically, of, of, of running a club, um, you know, to get your perspective on these different topics. And yeah, good luck to uh, Helsingborg in terms of um, getting to the Superliga soon. What, what are your, do you have a time frame? Um, what's your sort of like three, five year plan? 
I mean, we feel really good next year. We're going to be, I mean, if you know, you can never say it's going to happen. Right. But, uh, you know, with the success we've had this year, we're in fourth place right now. Uh, we feel like we can make a really good jump next year. So that's the plan right now. Well then thank you again. Good luck for this. And, um, yeah. Um, thank you for coming on Believe in Borussia. Cool. Thanks for having me. Since we recorded the interview before the announcement of the European Super League, I reached out to Jordan again to see how he feels about it. And he said, and I quote, The launch of the European Super League is a purely financially driven attempt by the owners of the largest clubs in Europe to de-risk their investment. I'm not in support of this in any way, shape or form. Um, very well put. And it also underlines one essential thing that falls a little short. People usually just say it's a money grab and people wanting more money. But it's also, first and foremost, for some clubs at least, a way to hedge their investments and their overleveraged positions that they put themselves into. Not Corona, they themselves put themselves into this position. Anyway, thank you for listening. We will keep an eye on this and see how it pans out. We have a big game on Wednesday. We have another big game on Saturday. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow us, to leave us a review on Apple Podcast if you like it. If you don't like it, let us know why and what we can improve. And until next Tuesday, a black and yellow shout out across America.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.